everyone. Thank you so much for coming over to listen today. I'm Sue Van Rees, nutritional therapist, food psychology specialist, author, and founder of Boulder Nutrition here in Boulder, Colorado. For the next few weeks, I'll be hosting a very special edition of the podcast called The Soul Food Sessions. The Soul Food Sessions are bite-sized morsels of wisdom from our guest teachers, little tasters here and there from me, and some sweet shares from my past participants of my online program, The Yoga of Eating, a six-month course and community to heal your relationship to food and your body. Registration is now open. Over the next few weeks, you will get mini appetizer plates to sample through the soul food sessions. We have amazing content coming for you. And if you like these little tasters and teachings, I guarantee that you are going to love the Yoga of Eating online course and community. The Yoga of Eating begins this January. This is my most complete body of work combining nutritional therapy, food psychology, yoga, meditation, embodiment practices, recipes, resources, and our wonderful group of online guest teachers. You can find out more at theyogaofeating.com. I could not be more excited to share with you this very special edition of Satiate, and I am also incredibly grateful to be offering you some of the most potent wisdom from experts all over the country. So pour yourself a cup of something wintry and warming, settle into your favorite spot, and enjoy this soul food session. I was fortunate enough to get to meet our special guest last spring when she came to Boulder for a weekend workshop that I was participating in. And I'm going to introduce today Chelsea Roth, and she is one of the most knowledgeable people when it comes to our relationship to body and food through a lot of the work she does in the world. And I thought maybe, Chelsea, um, if you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself and how your work has come forth in what you do today. And I just want to thank you so much for being here with us in this, in this podcast episode. Oh sure, um, and thank you for having me, Sue. I'm I'm excited to have a to have a conversation with you and, and connect with your community. Um, yeah, so I um, I'm Chelsea. Um, I run a nonprofit called Eat, Breathe, Thrive, uh, and our mission is to prevent and help people fully overcome food and body image challenges, which is just sort of an all-encompassing you know term for um, people who maybe you know. Um, eat when they're sad or don't eat when they're sad or don't feel comfortable in their own skin, um, which I often say is just about every human being on earth at some point. <laughs> um, yeah, and we do, um, we offer yoga-based programs for people struggling um, with any any kind of, you know, problem with food or, or with, with their body. Um, so we, we do programs in schools that help teens with mindful eating and, and body confidence. We have programs in treatment centers for people dealing with full-blown eating disorders giving them skills for um, for managing their relationship with food and managing their emotions so they don't end up starving or, or binging or purging when they're when they're feeling upset. Um, and then we have programs out in communities for everybody that is just focused on building networks of support that 
um, that facilitate and foster positive body image and mindful eating and um, emotional resilience. Awesome. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you today was just a little bit about your journey and really how you got here, how you got to creating this nonprofit and what was some of the inspirations behind that that came out of your story and what you were interested in, you know, coming into this work. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so um, anytime I'm, uh, you know, out and talking about what I do, people always have sort of a, uh, I mean, you already know the answer to this question, but there's always sort of a moment where they go, oh, so how did you get into that? <laughs> um, so, <laughs> um, like kind of that knowing, you know, how'd you get into that, Chelsea? Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, uh, I, I, I struggled with um, an eating disorder when I was quite young. Um, probably started when I was around 11 or 12 and uh, reached its peak around 15. Um, it was a, a, a pretty severe bout of anorexia, and I ended up having a stroke when I was 15 and being hospitalized for almost two years. Um, and when I came out of the hospital, um, you know, after I was inpatient for a year and a half, and I got um, a good bit of outpatient treatment. So inpatient just means you're living in the hospital, and outpatient means you're going and seeing a therapist and a doctor and nutritionist. Um, and when I came out, after all that treatment, you'd think I'd be, like, I'd have... I'd have all, this, all the skills and all the resources I needed to do really well. Um, and I wasn't doing well. I was really struggling. Um, and I was having a hard time sort of operating in the world without using food to cope with emotions um, and without, you know, I, I was just not feeling good in my own skin in any way. Um, and I came to the practice of yoga, and it was really, really transformative. Um, and I've alluded to it already, but it was a an invaluable tool in learning to deal with emotions like anxiety and depression, because up until then, I always starved when I got anxious. Um, and it was really helpful also in, like, practical things, like rebuilding hunger signals and rebuilding fullness signals so that I knew when to eat when I was hungry and how to stop eating when I was full. Um, and it's sort of a long story, but I was basically working in neuroscience and, and doing yoga programs for people with immune disorders, and I ended up volunteering in a treatment center to do a similar program there in an eating disorder treatment center. So I was kind of like my profession was um, doing research on, on yoga for immune conditions for like HIV and uh, cancer. And I was like, oh, well, I'm, so, you know, I'm doing this whole yoga thing for these people. Maybe I'll just go back and um, help out some people that I have a per personal connection to. Um, and that sort of snowballed into a full nonprofit that now has a staff and facilitators all, the, all over the world. And it's, it's become my, my daily work, which is a gift. Yeah. Well, I've been following you a little bit on some social media platforms such as Instagram and noticing that you've been traveling a lot and really spreading this work pretty internationally. And I just am curious, um, you know, the inspiration behind Eat, Breathe, Thrive has so many layers to it, as you mm -hmm. mentioned. When you travel and teach, what is the primary, you know, programs you're teaching around the world at this time? Yeah, um, so, so um, while I was working in neuroscience, I was, I was in a psychoneuroimmunology laboratory. And um, because I was in research, we used to have to develop these six-week programs that we could study. So let's say you want to study, a, like, study whether yoga works for, say, traumatic brain injury or something. In order to do that, you mm -hmm. have to standardize it. 
meaning you have to make a, you have to do the same thing. You have to do something that's replicable in lots of places so that you can, it's like a six-week program, it's time limited, that you can teach other people to, to run. Um, and because that was my background, when it came, when I started working in treatment centers, that was just sort of intuitive for me to, to build a six-week program. Um, so now what the, the nonprofit offers are six-week programs, kind of like I did back in the laboratory in neuroscience. Um, mm-hmm. And they, they incorporate... Uh, yoga, meditation, psychoeducation, which is a big fancy word for learning how your nervous system works and learning how your body works so you can cope with um, emotions and, and, you know, kind of manage your bodily states. Uh, and then community building and service activities. So it's kind of like a, this big holistic six-week program, um, and those are run in cities and communities all throughout the world, everywhere from um, Glasgow and Edinburgh to London to Boulder and Denver, so they're all over the place. Um, and they're led by educators and by yoga teachers and by mental health professionals and sometimes by nutritionists and dietitians. Uh, we have a few nurses who are facilitators. In general, they're led by helping professionals uh, in their own community. Um, and the intention behind that was if I've got, you know, a 14-year-old young woman in Australia who's really struggling with her body, I don't want her to have to fly out to Los Angeles where I live in order to take this program. So our model is that we train helping professionals in their own community so that they can bring their skills and their passion and then they, they've got a curriculum that they can run so they don't have to start from scratch. Amazing. So yeah. obviously there's a lot to what you teach and there's, you know, I know when I've worked with you in the past, I think we've spoken about these three primary values, and maybe we can dig into a little bit of the science as well today, but I'm just curious, kind of as a starting point, you know, if you could speak to those three primary values that Eat, Breathe, Thrive seems to really be based on as a foundation from everything I've learned from you. Would you be able to share those with us? Oh, for sure. Yeah, these are these are kind of my passion topics. So you just stop me if I go on too long. <laughs> um, yeah. So they're they're um, they're the three values that um, kind of the I guess the foundational principles that the organization runs on are community, embodiment, and service. So community is kind of I I always say like I think one of the reasons um, twelve step programs work and one of the reasons even treatment programs for most mental health conditions uh, work so well is they build community. So there's, it's not like, I I find with any mental health issue, and I do think of um, food issues as being a mental health issue, like it manifests through food, but it's definitely a mental health issue. Um, Oftentimes mental health issues is sort of enwrapped in shame and isolation and um, sometimes, you know, loneliness and all that kind of stuff. So I think one of one of the most important components to any healing modality is having a community of people with whom you can share um, authentically and vulnerably with, and also um, who you know you can you can practice the things you're moving toward with, right? So if I'm struggling with depression, mm-hmm. um, having a community of people I can get out and go for a walk with, or you know go and have a coffee with, that kind of stuff. The community is one of those values, uh, and of course, that was really important for me in my own kind of um, journey. Um, the second one is embodiment, which is probably like the least intuitive one for people, at least that, that term is. Um, embodiment is just a kind of a fancy term we use to talk about 
having a relationship with your body. Um, so I think of oftentimes food issues as sort of being like a, a big sever between the mind and the body, um, and not just sort of figuratively, but, um, you know, when I was in the, in the throes of my eating disorder, when my, when my body would say, hey, you're hungry, hey, you have low blood sugar, I didn't hear it. I couldn't hear what my body was saying at all because I'd spent years training myself out of that. So embodiment is having an ability to sense what's happening inside of your body, which is um, what scientists call interoception or interoceptive awareness. And then it's also mm -hmm. having an ability to regulate your body when it's in a state of dysregulation. So um, let's say that, like, I'm on a plane and we're about to go up and there's some turbulence, right? And I've, I'm, for as much as I travel, I still have fear of flying. Um, and my, my heart starts to beat out of my chest and my whole body's like, we're about to die. Um, embodiment is being able to go, nope, <laughs> actually we're not about to die. We are in a big steel tube in the air that's been, you know, that's very unlikely to fall down. So <laughs> embodiment is being able to regulate, you know, <laughs> anxiety and depression and all that good stuff. Um, and service is the final component. Um, service, you know, is, uh, at the end of all of our six-week programs, our, our, the people who come through our programs get together and they do a volunteer activity in their own community. Um, and I think of service as being an absolutely invaluable component to healing from any mental health struggle, like getting out of your own, um, like, I mean, I, this sounds so controversial. Well, not controversial, but I think often mental health issues is sort of focusing you on your own nose. Like it's very hard to see beyond yourself because it's because there's so much suffering and pain there, which is real suffering and real pain. I think of service as being valuable because it gets you out beyond your own, own nose for even just an hour or two hours of time. Uh, and I think service can also sort of teach you a lot about your own value and your own worth and kind of reconnect you to your place among things. I think of sort of mental health issues as dis disconnecting us um, and service mm -hmm. as being a way to like, you know, pull you out of yourself and bring you back to life. So that's a big component of all of our programs. So community, embodiment, and service. Beautiful. It's interesting with service because often, you know, in my own life, if I'm struggling with something emotionally, I notice that as soon as I go and help someone else, even if it's simple, like if it's just helping my friend with her new baby or, you know, giving a little extra attention to the neighbor that might not have, you know, might not be feeling well. It's like this very, you know, it's a, it's a palpable shift sometimes when we help someone else when we're struggling it can bring us out of our own suffering and it's such an amazing tool to name it that way on the way that you're using it in the work that you do so oh 100 percent um, yeah and i i would I add really to that to. yeah i and me too, I mean, that's been my experience like i i often say i would not be nearly as happy and healthy as i am today if i wasn't running a nonprofit. <laughs> my whole life is now kind of around that but, um, you know, it strikes, it, it's striking to me, and again, I'm quite deep in the mental health system, so we do a lot of work in, like, psychiatric institutions, that service is almost absent from almost, almost all uh, mental mm -hmm. health interventions. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what, uh, what, I mean, what a, like, cheap and effective solution. I mean, I'm not saying it's a panacea by any means. 
but um, just adding that one component to mental health interventions, I think, could be um, tremendously successful. And it's so simple and it's so easy. And I think most of us, if we look at our own experience, are like, oh, wow, that really works. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Interesting. Beautiful. Thank you. One of the words that you used just now that I've been really curious about and interested in in the work that I do, and I know it really lands for a lot of people when it comes to improving their relationship to their body through mindful eating, meditation, yoga, et cetera, is the word interoceptive. And you mentioned mm-hmm. it a couple moments ago, but I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit more around that, because I think it's so profound for people who are really working on the embodiment piece. Yeah. For, no, yeah. So you, I love you picked all of my soapbox topics. <laughs> These are like the things that I get most excited about. Um, well, these things yeah, make so, me feel like a sponge. I just want to like oh. hear all the science because you have so much of the science and it's such a valuable tool when we're, you know, learning both how to, you know, move forward in our personal lives, but also understanding that this is um, really science-based in a lot of ways. And I just mm. find that to be so amazing and profound in itself. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, and it's motivating, too. It's like, well, my nutritionist is telling me to do this, and it's like, oh, but science, science supports it. It's, it's definitely, yeah, exactly. uh, it can give us that little boost. Um, yeah, so um, back, when I, back when I was studying neuroscience, um, there was an entire chapter of our neuro, neuroscience textbook on um, proprioception. And many people who have gone through any type of, like, um, science or biology might remember proprioception from, like, back in seventh or eighth grade biology class. Mm-hmm. It's really, really well researched. Proprioception is your ability to sense where your body is in space. So um, mm-hmm. if you were, say, if, you can, if, if you're listening to this and you were to raise your leg up or raise your hand up, your ability to do that is because is is uh, proprioception. So it's like your mind going, "Hi, I'd like I'd like my arm to raise up now," and then your arm can raise up. That's proprioception. Um, it also helps you with balance and stuff like that. And it's we know a lot about proprioception because when people have strokes and a part of their brain um, is damaged, um, oftentimes they'll have disruptions in proprioception. Um, so, you know, somebody will have a stroke and all of a sudden they won't be able to move the left side of their body or they'll try to move the left side of their body and their right side of their body will move instead. Um, so it's really clear when there's been damage to proprioception. Um, interoception is kind of the counter to proprioception. So the reason I'm, telling, I'm saying all this about proprioception is there's loads of research on proprioception, but interoception, which is the counter to proprioception, it's your ability to sense what's happening inside your body at any given time, so not outside your body, but inside. Um, mm-hmm. we, don't have all time, we don't have nearly as much research on in- interoception, probably because if you have a stroke and it damages your interoceptive awareness or your ability to sense what's happening inside your body, it's not nearly as obvious, if that makes sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so about, oh gosh, I mean, we've known about interoception for decades, but I'd say in the past 10 years, the research on this topic has exploded. Um, I have little uh, uh, notifications that come to my email every day 
um, that it's called, it's called a PubMed notification. And so it basically says, hey, there's been a paper released uh, that mentions this term that you're interested in. And I have tags on interoception and interoceptive awareness. And it used to be that I would get like one ding, you know, every couple days. And now I get like 15 dings a day, which is, which is wow. really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and most of the research um, that's coming out is showing that people who have mental health issues, so anything from anxiety to depression to PTSD to eating disorders to addiction, often have disruptions in interoceptive awareness. And I say disruptions rather than damage because um, – and we could get into, like, we could have a whole podcast episode about this. Easy. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but some people with mental health conditions have very, like, almost hypersensitivity in some types of interoceptive awareness uh, and undersensitivity in others. So um, interoceptive awareness or interoception includes everything from your ability to sense hunger to your ability to sense fullness, but also things like your ability to sense um, the, the rate of your heart, like how fast your heart's beating, or your body temperature, or pain, or tension, or thirst, right? So we're finding with many mental health conditions um, that there's disruptions. So sometimes there's like hypersensitivity to pain, um, which might be something like fibromyalgia, uh, or hypersensitivity to fatigue and tiredness. Um, and this is all, this, I'm not saying that's actually true. I'm saying that these are some possibilities that are emerging. We're going, ah, there's, in, there's damaged interoceptive awareness here. We can't really say what came first, the chicken or the egg. Um, right. And with eating disorders, of course, you often see um, undersensitivity to hunger, hunger with anorexia or hypersensitivity to hunger with um, binge eating disorder or the counter to that with binge eating disorder, undersensitivity to fullness, uh, and with anorexia, definitely oversensitivity to fullness. Um, so it's a really interesting area of research. And um, I guess to bring it full circle, and I'll and then I'll stop talking because I'm going on forever. <laughs> but, no, I love um, it though. This is great information. Oh, good. I'm glad. Um, the, to bring it full circle, one of the reasons we incorporate yoga and meditation into every program we teach is these are two tools that seem to reliably help clients rebuild interoceptive awareness in the places they're undersensitive and better manage hypersensitivity. Um, so that if they're really aware of their heart rate or they're really aware of um, certain sensations in their body, instead of reacting to that by um, turning to alcohol or, you know, turning to, um, you know, food as a way of coping with emotions, they can manage that with their breath and with um, some really healthy tools. Yeah, great. So really, interoceptive awareness can be repaired. Oh, without it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, big time. It is such a pleasure to have you here for this very special edition of Satiate, the Soul Food Sessions, which are really little bite-sized tasters and appetizers from the Yoga of Eating online course and community. Our next course and community begins this January, just in time for the new year. I would surely love to have you join us and you can find out so many details over at theyogaofeating.com. The Yoga of Eating is a very diverse and complete body of work that supported hundreds of women in their journey to create a balanced and healthy and positive relationship to food and their bodies. 
staff of guest teachers this year is mind-blowing and supportive and wise and potent, and I'm so excited to have such a dynamic group of people supporting the Yoga of Eating journey. Thank you so much for listening today, and be sure to head over to theyogaofeating.com, and you can keep your eye on your inbox for the next Soul Food session coming to you.